Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Okay, so we're reading through the Psalms of Ascent. I said just a moment ago, we're gonna finish our study uh, next week. What we're doing in the Psalms of Ascent is essentially just tracking biblical themes through the songs in this collection. And we're identifying how these themes relate to each other and also build upon each other. Last week when we covered Psalm 128 and 129, we looked at the contrast of people who walk in God's ways and the word that the Bible would use to describe what their life looks like. People who fear the Lord and walk in his ways are described with one, all of them are described with one word and that word is those folks are blessed. Those who decide to do things God's way receive the blessings of the Lord. And they're seen everywhere. They're seen in their job, they're seen in their family, they're seen in their relationship with their wife and with their kids. Everywhere they look, there is some sense that God's hand is on their life and guiding and directing and blessing their life. That is clear, that was what Psalm 128 outlined. And then Psalm 129 came in and it, it showed us how that life of blessing can be contrasted with people who refuse to walk in God's ways. And they say, well, I don't, I don't wanna do things God's way, but I do like the way that he blesses you. I see how your relationship with your wife is, is really good and your relationship with your kids is really good and your, your relationship with work is really good. You seem to like, I want the benefits of all that. I want the blessings of all that, but I don't want to do it God's way. And so I'm gonna make a decision. This is the heart of the wicked person. I'm gonna do things my way. I'm gonna decide what's best for me, but I also want the blessings that come from him. So Psalm 129 is contrasting the man who's walking in God's way and experiencing the blessings of the Lord with a person who says, I don't wanna walk in God's way, but I also want to experience the blessings of the Lord. And it captures the jealousy in the heart of the wicked person because that can't happen. You're not gonna receive the blessings of the Lord when you refuse to walk in his ways. There's not a way around that, there's not a shortcut to that. You either walk the narrow path or you walk the crooked path. And each path has its own repercussions. And so what happens in the heart of the wicked person is he becomes jealous because he can't get the blessings of the Lord without doing the things that Lord, the Lord requires of him. And so he turns to affliction and he tries to afflict those who are walking in the ways of the Lord. That's kind of where we ended last week. So last week was the, the main theme from 128 and 129 was this idea of blessing and what it looks like in the life of a believer and what it looks like in the life of a wicked person. So what we're gonna do this week as we're kind of studying themes and building on themes, we're gonna take that idea of blessing and we're gonna move into a theme of repentance. So that's Psalm 130. Moving from blessing into repentance. Now you might think like, okay, well, why are we moving into the theme of repentance? 
Didn't we start with the theme of repentance? Isn't Psalm 120 the whole point of that? Like we started this Psalms of Ascent, the journey songs. We started that on repentance. Well, that is correct. We started this path on repentance, but you're gonna need repentance along the way too. All of us, our journey in following God starts with this sense of I've gotta turn from something, but along the path, you also have to stay conscious of turning from things along the way, and here's the reason why. Because sometimes, blessings have a way of turning into idols. And the very thing that God blessed you with now becomes the thing that you start serving. God gave you this, this, this amazing blessing and you're just like, man, look at what the Lord has done. And then all of a sudden something switches in your heart and you stop looking at the one who blessed you and you can't stop looking at that blessing. And then all of your time starts turning into uh, like, how do, I, how do I protect this thing? Like he, he blessed me with like, Lord, Lord, this is wonderful. Thank you for blessing with us. And then well, I just, I've got to protect it. I can't lose this thing. And now all of your energy shifts from worshiping him to protecting this thing. And now you've refashioned this blessing into an idol along the journey and you've got to turn and repent from that. So the psalmist gives us a repentance song in the middle of the journey because he knows that along the journey your heart is going to wander. But not just because blessings turn into idols, because blessings sometimes also become for us a form of validation that all of our choices and decisions are the right ones even when they're not. This is what I mean. You're doing the things that the Lord has called you to do. You're walking in his ways and things just seem right. You can't describe it other than just like his hand is on you. Things are good, like I'm at peace, things are good. Well, maybe things are good because I'm doing the right things. Maybe this blessing isn't just his grace that he bestowed upon me, not because I earned it, but because he loved me. Maybe I earned this. Maybe he likes the decisions I'm making and the way I'm talking to people. And so because my life is going well, it's actually validating that he likes the way I do things. Do you see where this is headed? Blessings are one of God's ways that he loves and cares for his children. But if his children aren't careful, those blessings can turn into idols or they can turn into validation trophies that tell us we're on the right track when you are on the wrong track. You look at that thing and you say, well, well, why would he bless me if I was making the wrong decisions? Because he doesn't bless you as a reward, he blesses you because he loves you. He doesn't do it because you earned it, he does it because he loves you. He does it in spite of you. And so in the middle of the journey songs, we're given this song of repentance. And then in Psalm 131, we move from repentance to this theme of rest. And the reason why we move from this theme of rest is because the psalmist wants us to understand that there is a connection between the rest that God wants to give us as a form of blessing and the scope in which we choose to live our lives. Now I'm gonna kind of dissect scope moving forward, but I want you to think about it like this. There is a direct connection between the peace you can live with and what you occupy your mind with. There's a straight line you can draw to how much peace you are living with in 
and what you choose to meditate and think on on a regular basis. And this is what 131 wrestles with. 130 talks about repentance and 131 wrestles with this concept of rest. So without further ado, let's get into it. Let's go to Psalm 130 and we're gonna read verse one. Verse one, it says, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So I will wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Okay, let's break this apart and try to understand what the psalmist is communicating. Because as we've said in previous weeks, the psalmist is using musical metaphor language. He's not outlining bullet point, bullet point, bullet point. This isn't like reading the book of Romans. What the psalmist is doing is he's using colorful imagery and word pictures to communicate 10 chapters of material in just a few lines. So what is he really saying here? Well, let's start in verse one where it says, out of the depths I cry to you. That word depths is a Hebrew word, and the word is mamakim. That's fun to say, mamakim. It's a a Hebrew word that's used five times in the Hebrew Bible and it literally means water or sea and the chaos that is tied to it. So the word depths is always used in the Hebrew Bible to elicit in the reader's mind some sense of staring out into the ocean as a hurricane is blowing in. That's what should be in your mind as the reader of this psalm as you start going through this. So out of a hurricane blowing in through the gulf and what that looks like in the sky and what that looks like in the water, imagine a person on a tiny little rubber boat out in the middle of that. That is the posture this guy has as he cries out to the Lord. He is surrounded by chaos and he cries out to God for mercy. Now in verse two and three and four, we see that the chaos starts making sense. He's crying out for mercy and he's saying, Lord, I sure am glad that you're not marking iniquities and you offer forgiveness. So the, the picture here is that this guy is in a tiny, not even in a rubber boat, imagine he's like one of those tubes that you rent to go down the Itchituckney River. And he's out in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico and a hurricane is blowing in and he's just, it's not, he's not having a good day. And he's crying out to the Lord, save me. We're starting to realize that he is there 
because of his own decisions. He's there because of wickedness. He's there because of sinful decisions that he made. He's in the midst of the depth of this chaos because of the wicked, sinful choices that he is making in his own life. He got himself in this predicament. And he's crying out to the Lord. And when he cries out to the Lord, he's appealing to the Lord's character of forgiveness. And he's standing there, he's floating in this little rubber tube and he's, he's saying, I, I can't believe what a mess I've made of my life. I need someone to not just clean up the mess, I need someone to fix all of the repercussions of the mess that I've made for myself. And he, he cries out and he says, Lord, I'm appealing to you on behalf of your forgiveness. Verse four, but with you there is forgiveness. About a month ago, I made a decision that I wanted to start taking um, my uh, understanding of biblical languages a little, ser- little more serious. When I went through college, I took two semesters of Hebrew. Um, my second semester only lasted a week. Um, I'm not good with language but it's not really an excuse. So about a month ago, I was like, okay, I need to start finding some online courses that can help me grow in my understanding of biblical languages. So in this process, I, I found this course that's walking through uh, some of the Hebrew structure for specific words. And one of the lessons that was in this uh, uh, course was talking about uh, the, uh, the concept of a definite article. Now, for some of you, I immediately just put you to sleep. It's, it's just like hypnosis, you're like, like, I slept through English, please don't talk about definite articles. And if you say Jaron phrase, I'm gonna walk out that door. <laughs> Hebrew has definite articles just like English has definite articles. And you may be saying, well, uh, what is it? Well, I know what a definite article is, but maybe, maybe like you could just refresh me so that I know that you know. <laughs> a definite article is just the word the. It's the word you put in front of a noun that gives the noun specificity, okay? It would be like saying um, uh, Red Hills Church meets in a building versus Red Hills Church meets in the building. Well, now we're not just talking about a building, we're talking about a very specific building. And this is even, we see it in English, but it's even more so in Hebrew. When Hebrew adds a definitive article in front of, or definite article, in front of a noun, it adds specificity to it, and it gives a very, very specific, it's almost like it calls the reader's attention to say, hey, we're not just talking about a couple abstract thoughts, we're talking about the thing. And what's, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because in Hebrew, in verse four, and you don't see this in the English translation, but in this course, this is one of the examples it was bringing out about Hebrew uh, uh, definite articles. In verse four, it says, this is the Hebrew direct translation, but with you there is the forgiveness. And you may be like, well, okay, well, what does that mean? The psalmist is identifying that the predicament he has got himself in requires him to appeal to the Lord for a very specific thing. And not just any old thing will fix this predicament. He needs one specific thing. He needs forgiveness from the Lord, but not just forgiveness, he needs the forgiveness. And what he's saying here is, I don't need you to just clean up my mess. 
I need you to reconcile the relationship that I broke that has caused this mess. Do you see the difference? Because when we're operating in the sense of like, when we're repenting, most often we repent of the specific sin that we feel like has offended the Lord. But that's not how David prayed. When you read through the word of God, you see this sense that, especially with David, that he has this understanding that all of the sins that everyone else is shocked by are simply symptoms of a bigger issue. And that issue is always the same thing. The relationship with God has been broken. And my, when, when my friendship and my relationship with the Lord Almighty who chose to pursue me, the God of the universe, universe who invented stars and wind and water and food and cells, when he says, I want you to be in relationship with me, and I say, I'm going to break that relationship to have this thing, the thing is not the thing that needs repentance and forgiveness of as much as my desire to not want to be in relationship anymore. That brokenness actually caused this. So if I spend all my time on these things, I'm not really looking at the issue. And the psalmist is saying that I'm appealing to you out of the middle of this little rubber tube in the middle of the ocean in the middle of this storm that I created because I'm here, not like I, I don't want to repent just because I want to get out of the storm. I want to repent because I want my relationship with you to be reconciled. I want you more than I want to be out of this mess. I'm appealing to the forgiveness. And this has two massive impl implications. The first being that what the psalmist is doing is he's actually appealing to the character of God. He's saying that there is in this universe some sense of a real, true forgiveness. That when we, when we handle and we talk to one another, we, we have this word in English, we have this concept of forgiveness. And if somebody, if, if you were to come and do something against me and you would say, I'm sorry, and I say, I forgive you. Where did that come from? If I were to say to you, man, I forgive you. Where did I get that idea from? Where did the concept that I'm letting you off the hook, where did that even come from? The psalmist is saying, that didn't originate in the heart of man. Man didn't try to pursue God and try to uh, pursue reconciling relationships. That didn't start with man. That started with God. And what he's saying is that there is a concept out there somewhere that should inform all concepts of forgiveness. And so the psalmist, in adding the article there in the front by saying the forgiveness, he's essentially saying that there is a definition of forgiveness out there that exists that should inform my understanding of forgiveness. And if there is a forgiveness that trumps all other forgiveness, then I can't let culture tell me what forgiveness looks like. I can't let my mom or my dad, there is one source that can inform me what real, true forgiveness is, and it comes from on high, and it's more than just a concept. I can't just go to the libraries of heaven and look up forgiveness and get the definition from heaven because the definition originated in the heart of God. He was the one who started it. The forgiveness originated in the heart of God. God is forgiveness. Now, why is that so mind-blowing? Because as it starts trickle down, down to us, now I have a reference point for how I'm supposed to forgive others. And I don't come up with my own definition. 
So if somebody comes to me and says, I've offended you, I can say, I forgive you. And that word is informed by the character of God and how he forgave me. But, but it's, even, it's even bigger. Because the idea that wrapped in Psalm 130, that there is a forgiveness that trumps all other forgiveness, the blueprint for that forgiveness is actually laid out in this chapter. So if you look, open up your Bibles, maybe put up on the screen, Psalm 130, verse one. Verse one says, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Now do you see that English word Lord, it's all caps? That word in Hebrew is Yahweh. That's God's name. But then you read in verse two, O Lord. It's not in all caps. It's because the, the, the word Lord in verse two is a different Hebrew word. It's Adonai. And he does it a couple other times. O Lord, O Lord. Verse three, O Lord, O Lord. Why is the writer hopping back and forth between these two names for God? Does this happen anywhere else in scripture? Well, I'm glad you asked because it does. In Psalm 110, David writes, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies footstool. And that verse is quoted in Matthew 22, when Jesus is asked about an issue with David and he responds and the underlying subtext of the way he responds is he's trying to point out that David had an understanding that the Lord could say to his Lord, meaning that there was a concept of a father and a son in the heart of God. That there wasn't a trinity that started when Jesus was born, that there has always been a trinity. There has always been this sense that there is a supreme power and there is a son who is also God, but the son of God. So when David says, the Lord says to my Lord, he's saying the father said to the son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Where else is this? This is found in Daniel chapter seven, one of the chapters I wanted you to read to prepare for the book of Revelation. There's this, there's this vision that Daniel is given where the Ancient of Days walks into the throne room of God and takes his seat and all of the angels start gathering around and there's this, there's this sense of, of, of some kind of like courtroom scene and the books are open and there's about to be judgment. And right after that, we're told that one like the Son of Man walks in and the Ancient of Days gives him authority to rule the nations. This is... 500, 600 years before Jesus is even born. The psalmist is outlining that from the foundations of the world, there is only one God that you can appeal to to get your relationship with him reconciled. And his way of doing that is through the work of the Son. I cry out to the depths, excuse me, out of the depths, I cry out to you, O Father. O Son, hear my voice. Let the ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas. O you, Father, if you're going to mark iniquities, O Jesus, who could stand in your presence? Are you seeing what the psalmist is laying out for us here? 
That, that the whole journey of following God starts with the act of repentance, of turning, but on that journey requires regular repentance because your heart turns to these things that God has blessed you with that you want to refashion into idols. And so you say, Lord, I've made a mess of my life even though I'm following you and I need to appeal to you. And what am I going to appeal to? I'm going to appeal to your character of forgiveness. That the only reason why I'm on this journey is because you saw fit to call my name back when I was living in some city with some broken people I wasn't worth being called out of that, but you called my name out of that city. I responded to you, and on this path, I made a mess of my life along, but you still love me, and so this is a mess I'm in, but God, do you remember calling my name? That's what I want to appeal to, not just the sense of like, oops, I messed up, but God, I'm appealing to the fact that you are a God who forgives, and if you weren't a God who forgives, who could stand in your presence? You have to be like this because all creation is broken. We've got no chance to stand on our own merit. It has to be you loving a broken people and satisfying the requirements to end the wrath of God on our behalf by letting the Son take the punishment for us. So this imagery, what it does for us is it frames out our prayers. It invites you like the psalmist, to take a look at the turmoil in your life and not say, God would be ashamed of me and so I have to hide my mistakes. It invites you to say, he already knows the mistakes I've made and so with the middle of them, I'm gonna cry out to him and I'm gonna appeal to his loving kindness and his mercy and I'm gonna appeal to the forgiveness. I'm gonna appeal to the son, Jesus Christ, to cover my sins and the mess I've made so that that can be dealt with but also but so that the relationship won't suffer. Lord, I want you more than anything. And then, right around verse five, we're told that he declares this and he waits for this forgiveness like a watchman on the wall. Now I want you to picture this because this is, this is packed with wonderful imagery that we've kind of lost because I, I'm just guessing, but most of you probably don't hold, like your job is not to sit on a wall all night and make sure no one attacks at 3 a.m. But that was a job back then a city was literally surrounded by a wall and it was somebody's job, a watchman, to sit up on the wall and to stare out in the darkness. Now imagine, there's no electricity. Your only light is by the moon and the stars and you're staring out over the dunes and you're just trying to see, man, is that, like, is that an army? No, maybe it's trees and it's pitch black and you can't tell, and the security of the city rests on your shoulders to either blow that trumpet that there is danger or to not. Can you imagine the stress? Everybody get out here. Like, what is it, what is it, what is it? Now, my mistake, it's a camel. I thought it was a bad guy, it was a camel. That's every night. So imagine in his heart the joy that comes the moment the sun begins to rise on the horizon and that little sliver of light starts creeping out across the land and he can start seeing things clearly. This is what the psalmist is saying. 
I'm in the middle of my mess and I'm crying out and appealing to you for your forgiveness. Jesus, do what only you can do. And I'm gonna sit here and wait until you do. And I'm gonna wait with the anticipation of a person who's looking from light from a foreign uh, object to shed light on my situation because I don't have the ability to see it clear. And so all I'm gonna do is I'm gonna ask you to do your thing and I'm gonna sit here and wait. I'm gonna wait until you forgive me. And the moment you start rising on me, the moment you come in like a storm and you calm the storm, the moment you rise on that horizon and all the waves start settling down and I can finally see clear because it's not night anymore. What is my response when you do that in my life? He goes down to verse seven. He turns and he appeals to everybody to get in on this. He says, I've made a mess, I'm appealing to the Lord, I'm gonna wait on him, and he's faithful to show up just like he always does. And in verse seven, he turns to Israel and he says, Israel, all of you hope in the Lord. Because with the Lord there is steadfast love. Surprise, there's another article in front of steadfast love. The Hebrew translation is, for with the Lord there is the steadfast love. Nobody's got steadfast love like the Lord has steadfast love. No one is as faithful to you as he is faithful to you. You're not even as faithful to yourself as he is to you. And so the psalmist is appealing to this thing that is bigger than him, and he invites all of Israel to join in on it. Now let's go to Psalm 131. It's a short one. 131 verse one, it says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. And I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Now we're told that David, King David, wrote this psalm. And he's giving us a picture of what a peaceful life looks like. What does rest, the blessing of rest, what does that look like? He says it looks like a heart not lifted up. What is that? I'd say it's probably an inner self that's free from feeling superior to others. How do you get that restful, peaceful life? You live a life where you stop thinking that you are better than those around you. You stop acting like this party would be lamer if you weren't here. You stop acting like when you show up, the party starts. You stop living like you are God's gift to any given community. But you also live with your eyes not raised too high, which I think is probably the inner self being content, not being driven for the lust of more and more and more. But here's my favorite one, and this is the most difficult one, I think, to wrestle with in the days that we have. Not to say that keeping your eyes not raised too high or not having a heart that's puffed up is difficult, but I say that this is the one that probably affects the greatest amount of people on a regular basis. Not occupying things that are too great and too marvelous for you. Now what is that? 
I think it means living within a specific scope. When we first planted Red Hills Church, um, I was working at a software company in town and I was learning about building software solutions for large organizations. And I would be brought into these meetings with the client and they would say, we need you to build this. Well, how do you get from having nothing to this software solution? You gotta build out the servers, you gotta build out all the code, you gotta establish the rules. But the most important thing is you have to establish what the scope of the project is. Because if, if you don't establish from the beginning that this is the scope, we're building this thing, we want someone to be able to log into our website and create an account to do this one thing. If you don't establish that scope that later on down the project, uh, six months into the project, somebody that's new is gonna join the company and be like, man, wouldn't it be cool if we could like change everybody's avatars and their pictures and we could create like a little social media thing so that you could also log in and get all the information, but you could also like message people back and forth? Well, well yes, that would be cool, but it's out of scope. And if we do that thing, the project is now not going to be completed in a year and a half. Now it's going to be completed in four years because that's an entire thing that has to be built out within the system. And I learned this process of scope. And in my mind, as I'm reading through this, this is what came up to me as I'm going through this. If you don't understand what's in scope and out of scope, you will occupy your time usually with things that are out of scope and you will tank the project and you will tank your life and you will never experience the peace that the Lord is trying to offer you. Because what David is trying to say here is that I have achieved this sense where my soul is calmed and quieted inside me because I don't occupy my mind with things that are out of scope. Who's the great dragon trying to get your mind out of scope? It's the internet. Let's learn about cryptocurrency. Is that in scope or out of scope? Because you just sucked six hours of your life down some YouTube rabbit hole watching some nobody talk about the values of cryptocurrency and you can't get any of that time back. No, nobody, all right, maybe it's just me. How about watching political or church failure reaction videos? All of a sudden, an entire workday has passed or an entire Saturday has passed and all you have to show for it is that you know that this one person at this church failed in this massive way or these, this, this one political party believes this ridiculous thing and they're trying to get you to get on board with it. Is knowing that information in scope or out of scope for you growing as a disciple and maturing your faith. I think one that's probably pretty prevalent is just this habit that we've developed of, of doom scrolling through social media. Man, how bad can it get? Every day you wake up, it's worse, it's worse. Have you heard this? Have you guys seen this? Oh, it's getting worse, it's getting worse, it's getting worse. Is it in scope or out of scope to occupy your mind with world affairs that happen in countries you will never go to in your entire life? I'm just asking, maybe it is, but it's worth asking the question. 
What is in scope for you following Jesus, getting closer to him, maturing your faith, and what is an absolute waste of your time? Because David says, if you don't start understanding what is in scope for you and what is out of scope for you, you will never achieve the peace and rest in your soul that looks like a weaned child. What is he talking about? How many of you guys have ever seen a child who just finished nursing? Nobody? Nobody's ever seen? Okay, you know what I'm talking about? Okay, as soon as that child finishes nursing or finishes that bottle, there's this moment where they're just like, <sighs> right, when we were raising our kids, me and my wife would call this milk drunk. As si it's like that belly's full, they're warm, they're in mom's arms or dad's arms, and they're just like, nothing, like everything's right. It's just, uh, and they just got this dumb grin on their face and their eyes are rolling back in their head. And it's, just, David says, that's how I live my life. That's what my soul looks like when I stop lifting my eyes too high, when I stop trying to set my heart on things that don't have any business for me, and when I stop trying to occupy my mind with stuff that is a waste of my time. And and this is King David who ruled a nation. You'd think that a lot of things were in scope for him, but he was smart enough to know that of all the things I'm required to follow Jesus about, this isn't it. And so I'm just not gonna waste my time with it. But I want you to look at verse three. He finishes this Psalm with an invitation, a plea for all Israel to follow his footsteps. So this is how we're gonna close. Psalm 130 and 131, even though one's covering repentance and one's covering rest, they both end with the same invitation. Both songs end with, O Israel. Both songs end with an invitation to join me in what I'm doing. And so the question I have for us today is, If both of these lifestyles are something we're supposed to be modeling, and both of them end with this invitation to stand up and model this, who is modeling repentance, and who is modeling peaceful living in your life? If you look around your life, who is blazing the trail for this kind of living? And if you can't identify anybody, you might want to consider getting different friends. Or at the very least, considering that you will be this kind of person for someone else. Because we can't lose the sight that there is something that the psalmist tells us we should be fixing our eyes on as the way we should live and that there is a way for once we start doing this to be the banner that the Lord uses for everyone else to follow. Because sometimes what most of us need is just somebody doing it first so we see what it looks like. Many of us don't know what a peaceful life looks like until someone stands up and says, I look like a baby who's milk drunk. And then they come and they start, well, well how'd you get there? What does that look like? And so this is the question that we wrestle with as we're ending here. Does anybody in my life look like this? Is there anybody who's living this kind of repentant lifestyle and this peaceful lifestyle that I can look at and in the midst of turmoil I can say, oh, I can follow him as he follows Jesus. I see what they're doing there. This is something that is absolutely within scope and possible to do. And if I can't find anybody, Lord, are you wanting me to do that? 
And I don't need to know who's following me, I don't need to know who's looking, but just the fact that in the structure of the songs, we're told that there should be an invitation for people to come and examine our lives so that this doesn't just start and stop with us, it continues with us afterwards. For some of you, it might be your children, for some of you, it might be your grandchildren, for some of you, it might be your coworkers or your neighbors. I don't know who it is, but the invitation we have to leave here with is, is this. God is asking you to wrestle with repentance and live a peaceful life so that you can be in reconciliation with God, but also so that other people around you can see what repentance and rest truly looks like. Because God wants to use you as a billboard on the side of the interstate that says, come and taste and see. That is the sum of what he wants your life to be when other people examine it. Amen? Okay, let's, let's close on that. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.